Hello and welcome to the Film Score Junkie podcast with me, Charlie Nelson, coming to you from the Legionate del Cinemamuto Festival in Pordenone, Italy. I have with me composer, writer and broadcaster Neil Brand, who is one of the UK's leading silent film accompanists. Since the 1980s, Neil has been improvising to silent films on the piano and has composed original music for films like Underground, Blackmail, Robin Hood and Oliver Twist. Over the past decade, he has become a well-known personality on TV and on radio as a presenter of documentary programmes on BBC4 and until recently, he has appeared frequently on Radio 4's film programme. Okay, so to start with, Neil, uh, what was it that inspired your interest in silent films? Um, It never occurred to me to be a silent film pianist until somebody asked if I'd like to try doing it. I'd always been able to play the piano by ear. I'd always loved movies and particularly film music. And I and a bunch of friends from Aberystwyth University had set up an arts centre in an old cinema in Eastbourne. And the Eastbourne Film Society, who were looking for a home, uh, said, can we use the cinema? We want to show films. Um, yes, absolutely. And they said, we show all films, so not just the art house releases that they'd normally show during the course of a year, but they wanted to show a silent. They wanted to show Buster Keaton's Steamboat Bill Jr., and would Neil be interested in playing it on the piano? Because they knew that I played piano. So it really was a case of going, oh, uh, yeah, all right, well, that sounds okay. So I, um, I was sent the film as a 16mm film. I played it on a projector on the wall of the flat that I was staying in at the time. I and my then-girlfriend watched it and absolutely fell about laughing. But at the same time, I was thinking, what on earth can I bring to the table? for this genius Um, and I prepared about 15 minutes of music all told it was an hour and a quarter long film and I had about three different themes one particular one for Buster and an overall theme for the whole thing and that was kind of it and I I think I was hoping that I could just play just improvise for the rest of the time now, when I was very young, I could sit at the piano, when I was on like 12 or 13, I could sit at the piano and I'd play just making stuff up for an hour or more. So I'd always had loads of you know, musical ideas coming out through my fingers. And I got way better at the piano as an improviser than I ever was sight reading, which is why I ended up giving up piano lessons when I was 16. So I sat at the piano with my prepared pieces, the film started. I kind of expected something would take over, but I had absolutely no idea what, how powerful what did take over was. Because the first laugh that came, suddenly my music changed completely under my hands and I played stuff I'd never heard before. And it felt great. And I got more confident, the music got better. The next laugh that came was bigger because the music was better with the film. And eventually we went into this huge kind of upward spiral whereby the laughs were just growing and growing and growing and I was getting more and more confident and playing better and better. So by the time I got to the end of that film, it was like, oh, I can do this. And a huge response. And 
that was the point at which I decided I was going to do whatever it took to end up doing that job for money. Uh, <laughs> this is about 1983, 84, something of that sort. So there was only one place you could go to play silent films, and that was the National Film Theatre in London, now BFI South Bank. So I wrote to them, said that I lived on the coast in Eastbourne. They said they were paying £20 a film, and it was going to cost about £8 to get up there, but it was worth it, from as far as I was concerned. But I would also have to audition, and the audition would mean playing a film I'd not already seen, playing a film at sight. So I sat down uh, in front of a movie I hadn't seen. It turned out in front of David Gill, as in Kevin Brownlow and David Gill, and they had press there as well because it was the film to um, pro uh, promote the whole season they were doing, which was called Hollywood Bubbly. A great man called John Gillett, who was working at the BFI at the time, had planned out this whole thing. And it was 20s movies. And this one was Upstage with Norma Shearer, which I watched again recently online. First time I'd seen it since I played it that first time. And again, it just worked. I was able to keep reading the film and the music that came out got better and better. And it finished with a scene in a wintry tank town in the backs of, of America. And I knew exactly what I was doing with winter and snow and stuff because I'd been playing Snowfall since I was about 11 or 12. And that was what really got me going. And after that, I realised I had to educate myself about silent film. So I had to see more silent films, I had to read up about them. The BFI gave me the opportunity to play for Japanese films, for American films, for French films. It was a huge French season two months after I started there, which was just a joy. And I was playing films like Les Miserables, um, La Rue, uh, all the great French stuff. That was before I even got anywhere near the German Expressionist stuff, which was being played all the time at the NFT at the time. So I had this extraordinary kind of education in early film from the piano stool, thanks to just the sheer breadth of early film they showed at the time at the National Film Theatre. It's as if the, uh, the film was the sheet music you were reading from. Hmm. It's, it always has been, to my mind, exactly what that is, because the director's dead, but the director, one hopes, has imprinted in the film what he would have wanted you to do as a musician if you had a chance to talk to him or her. So I've always tried to look at the film to see what the director has required his audience to do. So I'm sort of like an audience member. But then once I play the music, I see the music as another character in the film. The music is another part of the picture. Because if the director is saying, is signaling very strongly that we should not trust this particular character, I then will amplify that lack of trustworthiness and it will help the balance of the picture then that I've decided to make that decision about that guy. If I played through that guy or had played something different, that would not only have affected the balance of the picture, it would have been directly not what the director wanted. Some directors are easier to read than others. I mean Hitchcock, you know exactly what he wants from minute to minute. Ditto. Uh, well, someone like Stroheim 
actually tells you what music you want to buy off and stick it up on the screen and you've got mm. to play it and if your sight reading is as bad as mine that can be up there for a two or three seconds you're going oh, and you're trying to play the thing and then it's gone and you're supposed to, and quite often it's a very famous piece of music that's the other thing is the directors love dropping in a moment at which somebody plays a Chopin nocturne mm. and you kind of go I don't know any Chopin nocturnes <laughs> I know I'll make up some Chopin that's you know but then as I say my job I think is there to be to be there to serve the director as as much as possible just as a modern film composer would work with what the director wants. Uh, talking of accompanying films talking of improvising to films and not using sheet music have there been any occasions where you've played a film and you've used something like a cue sheet with suggested music on it? No um, there are plenty of those around. I've always tended to avoid using anything that sort of smacks of somebody else's idea of what this film should do. Because I trained as an actor, first and foremost. So I bring an actor's sensibility to these movies. So what I try to do is think, okay, how am I responding to this scene? How would I perform this scene? And what it comes down to is that if I was to read a cue sheet with suggestions from somebody else, that would be like me trying to take a part in a Shakespeare play and do it exactly the same way as Laurence Olivier did it, mm. or exactly the same way as Adrian Scarborough would do it. It's, it's pointless. The only thing for me is to do it as authentically right to what I believe as possible. And that sort of truth, if you like, is just incredibly important to me. When I'm working with the students at the Royal Academy and we have to play a scene in which two people are, I don't know, it's a very, very hot day, they're very, very sweaty and they need to tell each other something really important. I will say to them, okay, before you start playing now, just put yourself in the position of somebody in doing what these characters are doing. What does it feel like? What does your version of that feel like? What does heat feel like for you? What does, I don't know, jealousy or lust or whatever, what does that feel like for you? Because that's what's important. And that piano player's take on the film is going to be unique to them and is going to be different to mine and different to Gabrielle's and different to Donald's and Phillips and all the rest of the people over, over there. And that's what's important. If you use a cue sheet, you're immediately reducing the amount that a person can put themselves into a film. And I think putting yourself into the film is the least you can do as a piano player. I, this is my belief, and that is very much an acting trope. You know, it's method acting. You sink yourself into a part. Not every piano player feels the same about it, but that's, that's always been my ethos. As well as uh, improvising to films, you have also composed music for films, and I've written a couple of questions here which I think can either be said as two separate questions <laughs> or as a single two-pronged question. Yeah. One is... What do you think that an improvised accompaniment adds to a film that a, that a composed score doesn't? Mm. And the other one is basically the same one, but the other way round. Gotcha. What does a composed score 
have that an improvised score doesn't have? When I write for a film, when I'm composing, I can't help but feel this is something I have to do that is going to be then set in stone for years to come. And when I get it wrong, as I have done in the past, you know, the, the criticisms will be horrendous and they'll be there forever. When I get it right, hopefully people will really love the film and it will do its job and the rest of it, and that will be there forever. So I end up heart aching over every note when I write something. And it's also a long process because you can't help but be deep inside the film when you're composing it. And particularly a film like Robin Hood, where there's two hours, ten minutes. You have got to be absolutely spot on with your ideas for the whole of that time. Which means that I, with Robin Hood I was kind of channeling Vaughan Williams, John Williams, the Williams brothers, as I hilariously call them. Mm. Um, and also trying to pull the film forward about 30 years so that it had more of the feel of the Errol Flynn Robin Hood. And I found it really hard. It took nearly six months of my life to get that film right. And when I've scored a film, I then won't play it on the piano, not for a good few years, because I, I've kind of I've drained it from me into that movie. What an improvisation does, and I think for me anyway as a piano player, it allows me the freedom to skim on the surface of that film, to take risks, try things out. I can't take risks and try things out with the score because it's there, it's there for good. But I can sort of, I can go right off piste with a movie where I've not played, I've not, you know, I've got to turn it into something that an orchestra can play. And I can just have fun with it. And the best performances I ever give are when I'm very relaxed and just sort of let the music happen and try things out. It's a mental workout. When I was working with Paul Merton, he was saying that's the reason why he did the comedy store every Sunday night. No matter how famous he got, no matter how much he was pulling down doing great TV and all the rest of it, he turned out to the comedy store every Sunday night to just do improv comedy because he said it kept him sharp. It was like a workout for his brain. Well, for me, every improvised film is a workout for my brain. Mm. And as I get older, that's going to become more and more important. As we've just been talking mm. about improvised and composed scores, with your composed scores, certainly for me and probably for loads of others out there who have heard them either on DVD or live at a concert, there are many earworms in them. The first earworm from your one of your composed scores that I remember um, was your darn tootin mm. that you did for Paul Merton's series, in particular the da 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 yeah. theme. And um, then of course there's Underground and most recently there's um, Oliver Twist. Mm. Um, have people ever come up to you and and and, and said that they that they have those tunes in their heads? Not, not so directly, and it's very nice to hear, Charlie. Thank you. Um, I've always prided myself on trying to get tunes in there because I think tunes are the most important tool in any composer's toolbox. Um, making music memorable 
is great, not only because you're giving people something to go away whistling from the bit of that, but you're also giving them something to really anchor the characters. And I think that's important. Um, I have to admit to a James Bernard cheat in that Jordan Tootin was set to the title. So yeah. it was supposed to be Jordan Tootin, da 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 da, Jordan Tootin. So I was creating, as it were, a kind of Leroy Shields hmm. version of a modern Laurel and Hardy score, as if it as had been done by him. And I do try to uh, emulate other composers that I like when I'm working with films. With Blackmail, I was very much in a Miklos Roja world and Bernard Herrmann, for obvious reasons. I tried to emulate Chaplin as far as I could when I was doing Easy Street. Hmm. Um, sort of Leroy Shields with the, uh, the Laurel and Hardy. But also, I've been very lucky to have a gift for tune. Hmm. Uh, I grew up in a very strongly Methodist house. My family were, were Methodists, and the Methodist hymn book was probably the earliest music I heard. And all the great, great hymns in there, which have just got fantastic tunes, and often gorgeous harmonies to them as well. So I sort of grew up listening to all of those. And whether that was what fed my ability with melody or not, I don't know. But I do somehow have a gift. I don't know how I do it, except I use a lot of repetition. I do somehow have a gift for writing tunes that people will remember. And I don't know where that comes from, apart from the fact that that's what I like. I like hearing a tune that goes in and stays in. Easy Street. Mm. I. You, you'll certainly remember, I programmed that and your darn tooting for a concert at my school once. And when I contacted you, this was before I met you in Chester, I, I, I'd only seen you live once before in Manchester at the Lowry with Paul Merton. Mm. And the version of Easy Street I actually asked for, I didn't know it was improvised, mm was the version that you and you, Gunter Buchwald and Frank Bockius did for the Paul Merton programme, which was just you on piano, Gunter on violin and, and Frank on drums. Because I just really liked that one so much and it sounded like a composed score. Um, but instead you sent me the orchestral one and I listened to it and um, I got to like it. There were earworms in there, and of course, um, that's the score that I, I probably like the most. Have you ever thought about scoring any other Chaplin films? Well, it's a problem with Chaplin, because you can't score anything Chaplin scored himself. Hmm. Um, I like the, I like the, uh, the, the, the mutuals. I'm not so keen on his earlier stuff than that. Um, uh, but also I feel like I managed to land the best mutual. I, I, I'm, I was always hugely fond of Easy Street. It's probably the first one I saw on TV. Um, and I, I, mean, I think magic happens when I play with Gunter. And creating something with him is always brilliant. But the problem is I can never remember what we've done afterwards. And what we did with Paul, I have absolutely no idea. But the same thing happened with Underground. I did that first with Gunter and Frank and a couple of other players, and it went an absolute storm. But there was nothing from that in the score that I ended up writing for the orchestra. I think because, you know, you, you're in, I have to have different heads on in a way. I have to be, 
I have to give the, the feeling that's right at the time, particularly with other musicians, when I'm improvising. And with Gunter, that's always great. We just have a symbiosis when we play that brings out the best in the film and the best in us. Mm. When I'm on my own, as I say, it's different. I can go all over the place. But when I'm scoring, and I think particularly for Easy Street, I just felt this had to sound as much as possible like the way Chaplin would have done it. So as to, in effect, ground it in Chaplin's world, not in my world. So that was why I ended up writing tunes that Chaplin might have written. So the, um, uh, the fight in Easy Street, it's, it's quite simple, but it's, it's good enough. It's what Chaplin would have done. And throughout the whole thing, I just kept thinking, right, a Chaplin-esque tune, what's that going to sound like? Turn of the century, it's got to be heart-on-sleeve stuff. So, um, you know, the, uh, the da-dee-dee-dee when he sees her for the first time. That, that was a very Chaplin thing, to have the moment that Chaplin first sees her in Easy Street, that all the music stops and you just get that dee-dee-dee-dum. Now, it's almost impossible to do that as an improvisation but you can do it with a score. And it, it was, that was the, my main thing, really, apart from trying to do the film as well as possible, was to see if I could get inside Chaplin's head as a composer and create something that really sounded like it had come from him. Right. But talking of, of OK, not quoting, but being inspired by other composers, it's... I mean, it obviously it it, it 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 accounts for you, um, especially with your appearances on the film program and the series of programs you've done on BBC Four. You've talked to other composers, and you, and for some reason, I think you really managed to get inside the heads of these composers and and manage. And okay, I'm not sure if you managed to do it accurately or not but in some ways you've given you've managed to make us understand although I can probably not put it into words how their music feels on your ears like the, the actual feel of it as, uh, and, and the sound of it the tunes the texture the chords and whatnot everything in there I mean I recently listened to that really great interview you did with uh, the late great Richard Rodney Bennett mm. uh, talking about murder on the Orient Express mm. and I also recently listened to his film music I mean Billion Dollar Brain mm. I listened to over and over again and I also listened to his concert music you I also heard that you put some of murder on the Orient Express into underground mm. like the bit where um, is it the trains going, passing through Warren Street? It's, it's actually, it's something I'd never heard anybody else do. And I remember, the, the reason why I sort of feel that I've got, I've got a handle on this stuff is because it, it, it really went in hard when I saw the films. I can still feel now the visceral response to hearing music that really affected me. So with, with, um, with Murder on the Orient Express, it starts with the recreation of the kidnapping 
And what Richard Rodney Bennett did, no, it starts with his tune, of course, it starts with his theme, but then the first thing you see is this recreation of the kidnapping. And it's like Richard Rodney Bennett gave a real sense of evil, evil being done by the kidnappers of this little girl and who are then going to kill the little girl. And he had this extraordinary thing I'd not heard before of strings feeling like they were yeah. sliding. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that stuff. And there's a moment in Underground where we know that the woman who has been wronged by Joe is in the power room with him in the power station. And he doesn't know she's there. And we know she's mad enough to kill him. And he's standing by a cable that says 10,000 volts. Mm-hmm. And because they really draw that scene out, you know, Asquith does a brilliant job of making us go, oh my God, she's there, oh, what's she gonna do? <laughs> that at that moment, it just felt right to have the, yeah, yeah, not actually referring to her, because she's the wronged party in this, but mm-hmm. a sense that something bad's gonna go down. So I, I had to get Tim Brock's help with this because I could hear what Richard Rodney Bennett was doing. And I wrote what I thought he was doing and then got Timothy to, to, to score it up for me because Tim writes strings brilliantly. And it was, I think, if I remember rightly, splitting the first and second violins so that you had one section start to fall as the other half of the section then started to fall, and then Mm. the third one then started to fall. So you do get this sense of something oozing downwards Mm. off the music. And that was absolutely, yeah, I hope it's a homage Mm. to Richard Roddy Bennett, and I didn't just rip it off him. But, I mean, if I was going to rip off someone, you would rip off the best. And as far as I'm concerned, he's about the best. Certainly there was in my lifetime, that's for sure. Bennett also had, as far as I heard, he, he was very crafty or very clever when it came to scoring things for instruments like horn, mm. oboe and flute. Mm. The flute, he makes it shimmer. Mm. It sends a tingle down your mm. spine. I mean, I listened to the, his love theme from Yanks. First on the oboe, then you get the flute, which is, has this vibrato in it. Mm. Then, of course, later on in the piece, you get the horns going da 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 which is atmospheric and expansive. There's no other brass instruments in there, it's just horns, there's no trumpets, no trombones, mm. and it sounds just right. Mm. And then recently I was doing some digging on the internet and he did it again. He did it with these arrangements he did of Jerome Kern's songs oh, yeah. 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 with Barry Tutwell playing the horn. Mm. And like, look for the silver lining or till the clouds rolled by and I've, I've heard that in your scores as well and of course you've you've not just um, mentioned Richard Rodney Bennett um, a few times either when you're on telly on the radio or, or have paid homage to him in your scores you've also done there's Malcolm Arnold mm, very much in underground especially as it's yeah. a, a British film yeah. score Malcolm Arnold is one of the many British sounds to yeah. include in there 
I think that's important too. Also because I like the fact that Arnold is quite reckless in what he does. So, you know, when he's when he's doing the Colonel Bogey march, you really can hear that he's told those musicians to let fly. It sounds like a bunch of slightly drunk musicians mm. who've who are at a mate's birthday party and are playing him the, the Colonel Bogey score. So it's not kind of, uh, not po-faced. And I find none of Malcolm Arnold's stuff is, even his serious music, still has a, a, a humour to it and a, a depth to it that sort of belies its, its film music status. I think he put his heart and soul into it just as much as he did into his symphonies. And where I lose Vaughan Williams, for instance, is that there are times when Vaughan Williams goes deep into something musical where I, for some reason, can't follow him. But I can follow Arnold anywhere he wants to go. And I was very keen to use lots of ideas of his. I got very, very... I, I mean, I deeply love the Hobson's Choice score. And what he did with Hobson's Choice was give us genuine emotion but filtered through just the very slightest twinkle of the eye mm. so that you you can't take it entirely seriously but at the same time it is serious because it is happening and that ability to create it's what i mean I, i'm no great fan of ben elton but ben elton referred to this idea that you talk about serious things in a funny way you get serious comedy Hmm. I think if you talk about, musically, if you talk about serious things in a funny way, you get serious comic music. Hmm. And that's what all my, I would like all my music to be, is comically serious or seriously comic. Hmm. And I think, um, especially with silent film, people have stereotyped silent film as just being funny. Yeah even though at the time that was the most popular form of silent film there was. Mm. And with films like Underground mm. and Robin Hood, there are nice, funny elements in there. Well, they're intended to be broadly entertaining. Yeah. You know, I mean, Robin Hood was, in its day, both intended to be and I think succeeded in being, the most popular film in released that year. And Fairbanks poured everything that he knew into that film. And as much money as he could, hence they built the castle full you know, full size on the back lot. And all of the thinking behind it is richly comic. The opening of Robin Hood is where we first meet Loxley, who's obviously gorgeous and every woman's mm -hmm. flocking all over him, but he can't speak to women. He's deeply shy of them. He doesn't know what to do. So there's a whole scene in which the king makes more and more women go up to Loxley after he's won his joust, until eventually he's running away from this huge group of women, exactly the same way as Keaton does in Seven Chances, only this time they're not trying to kill him, they're trying to kiss him. Mm -hmm. And it plays totally against the whole Fairbanks, look at me, I'm a star, gorgeous, fantastic, bod, handsome man thing until he meets Marion. And then he sort of, he gets, he gets a zing when he meets Marion that he hasn't had with any other woman. And then they have this wonderfully awkward wooing scene. And I, I found I scored that like that. Um, 
even though if you watch it and you, you can't work out what it is that's going on between him and Marion, she can't talk because she's supposed to be a shy retiring maiden. He can't talk because he's deeply shy of women. The only way they finally do somehow or other make it is that he says something very, very truthful to her. And the moment that happens, I didn't bring in the love theme till then. Hmm. No point bringing the love theme at the beginning because they kind of haven't quite made it at that point. And the music kind of stumbles around in that scene as well. You might as well, as well do it when it happens. And then once they've... Then we're there. Well, I learned all that from Malcolm Arnold because Arnold is very good at scoring awkward situations. Mm -hmm. And that's you know where the, the comedy lies in the thing, but not so awkward, not so sort of overly comic that you take any seriousness out of it. Arnold, um, from when you were describing him, was, I think, very musically honest. Mm. He gave, he underscored in a very honest way, he, he, he wrote the right sort of mood music for a particular character or a particular mm. scene, like the bit in, St, in the Bells of St Trinian's when mm. they're all going to school on the train. Yeah and everyone's starting to panic. Yeah, absolutely. And the policeman phones the superintendent, I think it is, and he says, they're back. Yeah. And yeah. the superintendent just gets the whiskey out of the cabinet. Absolutely. And, and it, it's, and of course you did it in, in Underground, the bit where the fat guy gets on the, yeah. on the train at the beginning, just at the right moment when he, he steps onto the train and grabs hold of both the handrail thingies taking up a huge space. And it was so lovely to give the tuba a proper solo at that mm -hmm. point. And I have to say, at the first playthrough the BBC Symphony Orchestra did, when he finished his solo, the rest of the orchestra all applauded. It was really nice, because obviously the tuba doesn't often get a chance to shine. But it's very Malcolm Arnold, and it's almost mm. Mickey Mousing. But, you know, again, you're, 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 setting a, you're setting a style that it's okay to laugh and to be a bit you know, over the top with these moments because we're also going to be horrified and taken deep into the, you know, the, 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 the psychosis of, of a woman wronged. And it's, you know, that too is going to be taken seriously. So Neil, um, we were talking about uh, memorable musical moments. Mm. And that brings me to this question, which is when you improvise to a film on the piano, mm. Have you ever played something and it's have you ever played something and it's made you think that that you should write that piece down or use mm. it in a composed score? Yeah, it happens all the time. It's another reason I really enjoy improvising at the piano because that way, particularly if you're really into a film, you start to get the same motifs coming back up again time and time and time again. And musically that happens as well. So many times I've either come across a motif while I've been playing that I've then been able to remember next time I played the film or has just been sort of thrown up again in the same way. And this links back to what I was saying about being truthful with, you know, if I'm deep in the film a second or a third or a fourth time, it will be for the same emotional reasons. It'll be the same emotional buttons that are getting pushed. Mm -hmm. And so the same 
style of music or the same feeling of music is going to come up each time. So in some cases it's actually the same, literally the same motif, it's literally the same tune. I have found that I've played films 20 years apart where I started playing the film not remembering anything of what I'd done before and then about halfway, three quarters of the way into the film suddenly there's a piece there that I'm playing and I think, oh yeah, that's right, that's what I played last time, even if it's just a couple of chords even if it's just the sort of the, the passageway into the idea, it comes back. And then in some cases, I've actually been able to put those into an actual movie. I, weirdly, not with Blackmail, even though I probably played Blackmail 20 or 30 times on the piano before I scored it for orchestra. So I felt that I kind of knew the subtext of Blackmail very, very well. And I'd already, as it were, road tested the emotional backstory of, of, of blackmail. But there wasn't a specific tune. Um, and that was the one and only time that I've started a film. Because normally when I, I literally do score a film from the first second to the last, I don't drop into it at any point and try and score that scene. I actually do score it cons consecutively through the movie. And that's the only time I've ever actually dropped into the film at the beginning and come up with a motif which has turned out to be a really good motif that I can bring back again and again. With almost all the other films I've scored, including Underground, what I started with never appears again because I just went in with an idea and it was fine to get us underway but it wasn't the big thematic idea that was going to sum up the whole film. With Blackmail, somehow or other, it was that chunk, da 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 perfect. And, I, and where it came from, I have absolutely no idea. But it turned out to be exactly the right sound to then be able to run variations on all the way through the rest of the film. Um, and I, I still, I think I must have been just so excited at the thought of working with an orchestra. And, you know, using what I remembered of the film that that motif just happened at the right time in the right way and I was able to you know then spin off that to do the rest of the score. Um, you're, you've just been talking about talking about blackmail you did another Hitchcock film The Lodger. Mm. Um, I've heard that score and there's a somewhat different approach I've actually heard you talking about writing that score and one of the themes I think it's either the love theme or the Lodger theme itself, like, develops over the course of the whole film. Mm. The opening title music to The Lodger is just... The opening <coughs> title music to The Lodger is, like Psycho, it's rhythm and texture <coughs> and very little melodic bits. It's just da 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 and so on. It was very different. I think it's partially because I knew it was going to be for a smaller ensemble but also because I think the lodger has more problems with it for a composer than blackmail does. Blackmail is such a finished and perfect piece of film. I th for my money, I think it is the greatest silent film. Because, you know, while Hitchcock was trying to make a sound equivalent and he was a, a newbie with sound, just like everybody else was, he was so totally experienced with silent film that 
being his last silent, the silent version of Blackmail is for me the apotheosis of everything he did during the sound during the silent period, and most of what other directors were doing as well. Whereas The Lodger, even though he says it's the first Hitchcock film, has massive mood swings, which are very much on the nose. Mm -hmm. They're very quick. They're very hard to elide musically. And also, I think, much as I love Novello, I think Novello is a difficult animal to deal with. His exoticism, his, his beauty, and that very theatrical, rather mannered performance at the center of the whole thing belies all the realism that Hitchcock is after with the rest of the film. So although we may start with uh, you know, a tea vendor's hut beside the River Thames where there's the dead body of a woman who's been strangled, as soon as we meet a novello, our, you know, the, real, the realistic rug is pulled away from under our feet and we are in a German expressionist world in which a kind of rather handsome English version of Nosferatu <laughs> is stalking these women. And so trying to maintain the reality and the immediacy of what's happening, which he does brilliantly in blackmail, whilst also allowing for the sheer theatricality and, let's face it, camp of Novello, really makes for a tougher a tougher watch and certainly a, a tougher film to score. So I was determined to put the one thing that went both with the realistic side of, of Lodger and as it were the sort of expressionist side of Lodger, which is the dark heart, which for me was that da 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 that sort of sense of something bubbling underneath. And you didn't know what it was going to be or when it was going to come out. If I'd given it a theme, it would have been difficult because I wouldn't have known whether to make that theme something Hitchcockian, something about Novello, something about the lodger himself, about the, the look of him. I, I wouldn't, just would not have known what to do with it. But I was also determined to make the love theme as genuinely muscular as possible because they, you know, they, they very nearly make love. There's no two ways about it. So I wanted to make the love theme not just an airy, fairy, romantic, piece but something suggested a, suggesting a real attraction between these two on on screen so that was why I ended up doing what I did and in fact I although I played the lodger 20 or 30 times I didn't use any material I've used before with the lodger because there I felt like I was coming to it as a completely blank sheet of paper it was it was more the texture I was able to bring to it with the ensemble knowing that I had a really good ensemble playing, that was Ben Palmer's um, Common Garden Symphonia, and that each individual player was a real master, a mistress of what they did. So I just wanted to make sure that I wrote it in such a way that those players could play to their best, and that we got a texture out of it which embraced all the different and kind of rather challenging elements of the film. I imagine you did uh, similar things uh, a year or two after that uh, when you um, reworked your Oliver Twist score for a small orchestra. Well, that was actually really by chance. I'd scored Oliver Twist for a DVD release for the BBC, but I'd done it all on computer using computer instruments. 
But thankfully I'd been smart enough to score it musically so that all of the instrumentation for that was in the right place, all the tempi were set. It was done as bars of music, even though I'd recorded them all myself. Hmm. So actually what I did was I slightly edited um, because, I'd, because I'd done it for computer, I was able to use great big orchestral sounds and things. So what I basically did was when Ben said, well, you can have 10 and you can't have percussion because percussion is the most expensive mm-hmm. element of any ensemble because they, they have so much portrait you have to pay and all the rest of it. And they take up a vast amount of the pit too. So um, I, I then adapted what I'd already got. But in some cases it was great because I was just lifting MIDI files mm. straight into, mm-hmm. um, into Sibelius to work with, which meant that I could do it very quickly and I could be pretty sure that what was there worked. I mean, that was, that was the main thing, was that I, f- I, was pl- I was proud of that score for the DVD and I was fairly sure that it would work if we did it as a, uh, as a live show. And it has proved to be really successful. I mean, it's actually going to be done in Brighton with the Brighton Symphonia and with um, Joanna McGregor conducting in February of next year. And the one thing I'm going to add to it, because she's going to bring in more strings and things, so it'll be the same arrangement but with a bigger ensemble. Mm. But the one thing I am going to do is add a percussion part to it because Mm. it feels like it needed it. I used percussion a lot in the original version of Oliver Twist. And particularly things like Oliver's chase, the chase when they're chasing Oliver through the streets Mm. and he winds up in the the Punch and Judy show. That really needed just a bit of snare drum, just doing dum-a-dum, 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 while that was happening, because it just adds that extra layer of oomph to it, let alone the, the death of Bill Sykes at the end, which, which is fine, but it just doesn't quite feel powerful enough without some percussion there as well. So I want to put, put in a percussion part for that, which then hopefully we'll hear for the first time in Brighton next year. You have interviewed... Uh contemporary composers who are still with us Mm. as well as um, veteran composers some of whom are sadly no longer with us Um, what is it so are are there any modern I, I probably know the answer to this already but what modern film composers um appeal to you the most um it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because what I've always admired in film composers is the chameleon ability to change, to shapeshift as a composer from one film to another. So that the music that Richard Rodney Bennett wrote for Far From The Manning Crowd has seemingly no connection with the music that he wrote for Billion Dollar Black Brain, which seemingly has no connection with the music he wrote for Lady Caroline Lamb and yet they are all still the same composer and he he sank himself into the worlds of those three films and produced three completely different styles of scoring so for me Andre Desplat is up there for his ability to do that and to really kind of um, mix and match according to what the film seems to need Um, I am I have just become increasingly uh, awed by John Williams. It, 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 it still amazes me the degree to which that man 
has not only produced the music that he has for the great, you know, the big tentpole films, Star Wars and Indiana Jones and so forth, but that his his musical uh, palette is so diverse. I've I've listened. I bought the the CD of Harry Potter and. Uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban, which for me is the best of his Harry Potter score. And I've played it over and 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 over again. Because there is so much beautiful music in there, really fine, but also scary and atonal and odd music as well. The bit with um, the night bus yeah. in there. It's just it, tremendous, it's, it's just, it? It goes, it, goes, it goes berserk. It really does. And you can tell that that's something he had to cook up in the studio. You know, mm. he's never going to do that live. Well, um, I think he. Well, he did. Oh, um, he did do live. That cue. Well, it has. Yeah, it has been done live actually. Oh, okay. I've, I've seen a clip of Ben Palmer doing it in Germany. Oh wow! Um, okay. The night bus cue was. I'm not sure how often. John Williams uses orchestrators, but the orchestrator on that cue was a guy called Conrad Pope. Okay. And I'm, I imagine that Conrad Pope knew, either knew exactly what Williams, mm. what Williams wanted, or he didn't know what Williams wanted, but he, he was able to do the orchestration in such a way that Williams absolutely liked it and thought it was his own or yeah. people thought John Williams did right. it himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is great. Uh, it's, uh, the night bus cue sticks out like a sore thumb as, thumb as being rather less John Williams than a lot of the rest of it. Although it's got links to things like Catch Me If You Can and those early jazz pieces that he was doing when he first started with TV with that very, very fast drum and bass background to it. And I, I think, you know, that's why I wonder if it could ever be done live, because he's obviously got a bass player who I don't think is reading. I think that bass player is, is at least he's not been written, he's not had a bass line written for him. I think he's been given the bass harmonies that he's working to. But those, that feels like a really good jazz bass player who knows how to drive a piece of music by very, very fast playing. That's what I mean about cooking it up in the studio, is that I think whether Conrad Pope did it or, or John Williams or whatever, it feels to me like something whereby you have an orchestra who are very much scored and you have other elements of it, particularly like the, 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 the rhythm section, who have got a, a certain amount of freedom to do what it is they do within the piece. But the ones that get to me are things like the um, uh, the, the darker pieces that you know go with the uh, the Patronus and things like that, and everything about um, Prisoner of Azkaban just it just works. It's 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 superb. And I know he's he's been very dismissive of his own main theme for Harry Potter because I think he wrote it for a trailer or something, or he wrote it as a it it, it, it he got called in to do something on on it where he just had to produce a piece of music that fitted with Harry Potter before he ever scored any of the films. So the piece that he wrote, he seems to have kind of like dashed off because it felt roughly right. That, I think, is, ext is extraordinary because it's a fantastic piece of He music. probably thought that he couldn't do better. There are a couple yeah. of similar 
well-known stories of things like this happening. There was Howard Blake doing the music to The Snowman. Mm. He'd already pretty much written Walking in the Air mm. years before. Then he got the call to do The Snowman and he pretty much put it in the score. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, there was the story of Eric Coates mm. writing the Down Busters March, and he said, I think I finished it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. Exactly so. So they're my, uh, they're my, my particular faves. Um, but I'm always interested to see what Michael Giacchino is going to do next. Um, I've loved his stuff. I, I, my... I, my particular love of his is the score for Ratatouille because he included so many tropes of French popular music mm. in that film um, and although he sometimes for me is a bit on the nose there's times when I, you know, I can hear you know, the Giacchino approach but the first thing that I heard of his that made me really sit up was the music for The Incredibles because I just thought he did a fantastic job of uh, mining all those sort of 60s John Barry styles of music to to make the, the Incredibles fly. And there were many times that, I have to say, children's films or films aimed at kids have had fantastic scores. I, I still don't think Hans Zimmer has been responsible for anything greater than the music to Rango and mm. Kung Fu Panda. I both, see, yeah. both masterpieces as far as I'm concerned. I think, yeah, Hans Zimmer, I'm actually going to see Hans Zimmer live next year Fantastic. in Liverpool. And um, I've, with Hans Zimmer, I kind of, I kind of knew his music, but the track that he wrote, which I really, really liked, was the Driving Miss Daisy theme. And I think Hans Zimmer, all these composers, which is probably one of the reasons why they're really great, is because like, as we were saying earlier, like Malcolm Arnold, they are really honest mm. when it comes to underscoring mm. certain characters or certain scenes. Yeah. And um, I mean, Michael, Michael Garaccino did it with Up, yeah. The yeah. Walls, yeah. which yeah. he got an Oscar for, I think. Yeah, I'm not surprised, it's wonderful. And my Charlie is just learning that on the piano. So I'm hearing it time and time and time again in a, in a very early piano version of it. It's for easy piano. So he's just learning how to do that. <laughs> and it is, it's a beautiful piece. But with something like Hans, and of course we always have this caveat with Hans that he's basically a producer who composes but also works with other composers and parcels out work to other, other composers. Much the same way, I think, as you know, an artist might not necessarily make everything that they produce themselves. Mm. They, they get other people to make it to their, to their requirements. And I have heard stuff from Hans which just has not worked at all for me. Uh, the, the biggie for me being Dunkirk. I thought the Dunkirk music pretty much was either redundant or obtrusive right the way through the film. And that was a shame because I, I've liked what he's done with Chris Nolan before. Uh, Inception, I think, was a, was a bit of a problem because Inception sold this idea 
that you could get one single sound, one single texture that could somehow or other sum up a whole film. I don't think that is really always the case. In fact, I think it's very seldom the case. With something like Inception, maybe, because the, the high concept of Inception was so strong. But it really didn't work with Dunkirk. And when I heard the first dawnings of um, uh, the, the, the final piece, the Elgar at the end, mm. played really, really slow. You know, it was like, I was thinking, oh God, yes, because he slowed down it, um, PF for mm. Inception. This, this doesn't do it for me in it any way. It also harks back. It's as if he's basically taken a cue directly from Malcolm Arnold, who, mm. used, who used Colonel Bogey in mm. Bridge on the River Kwai, mm. um, except he's used a somewhat more serious piece mm. that you can't really put, that you can't really set rude words no, to. No, no, no. But what I think, where... Hans Zimmer missed a trick, for me anyway, is that the real sense of catharsis at the end of Dunkirk, which is what Nolan had been heading for by having his three different timescales, so that all three stories are basically wrapped up within the same three-quarter of an hour prose part, of the last part of the film, is that he could actually have found something that was genuinely heartbreakingly right that already existed. Hmm which wasn't Nimrod, but might have been, I don't know, yeah, the, the Second World War equivalent of it's a long way to Tipperary. There might have been something he could have found, which Arnold would have found, to make that last chunk of the film with the Spitfire flying over the beaches and Kenneth Branagh getting on the boat and all the rest of it. There could have been a piece of music there that just put a lump in your throat that did hark back to the realities of both the war itself and the music that was around at, a t at the time. I, I don't know what the piece would be. It's not We'll Meet Again. It's not hmm. Colonel Bogey. It's not anything I can think of off the top of my head, but I think it feels to me like there should have been something that did it in the way that Dennis Potter hmm. plays, the Dennis Potter programs did, where he managed to find popular music from the time that really carried a terrific emotional weight in things like Pennies from Heaven, and the singing detective. Like what Tarantino does as well. Yeah, well, like what Tarantino does. Although I just feel Tarantino tends to splosh his particular fave through his films. The soundtrack to his life, I guess. Yeah, it really is the soundtrack to his life. Um, the use, Hans Zimmer using Nimrod, it is a little bit emotional, but if you think about it, of course, I think Nimrod is only really a, a hymn when it comes to the death of some some royalty well th figure. this is the problem i think is and an, not a, not soldiers dying in battle but also um, a younger generation now aren't going to know anything about elgar they're not going to know anything about nimrod that piece is going to mean nothing to them and i think it is it's part of the problem that i think it, we all get as i get older my musical um roots are moving further and further and further away so I could talk to someone of your age about I don't know Louis Armstrong they're not going to know who I'm talking about certainly not going to know who Malcolm Arnold or anybody else is let alone Elgar so I, I do get it that for a modern audience that's going to turn out for a Christopher Nolan film 
I don't know what they would see as a piece of music they already knew that was deeply emotional, that would fit men standing on the beach waiting to be rescued from certain death. I, it's, it's just, it just is a problem. I might be able to try and write something that suggested that, but whether that would work with a modern audience or not, I don't know. I think the films, in terms of scoring, and you'll definitely know this, and, and I think several other people like us would know this, um, I mean this harks back to the whole kids movie music being memorable, would be musicals like some from the 50s, with me, it was mus later musicals from the late 60s, early 70s, like mm. Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory or, mm. or Oliver. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and um, you, of course, Neil, have, for some of your big scores, have worked with orchestrators like Timothy Brock, mm. yeah. and um, who has really been able to, who, as you said, was great when it came to um, orchestrating for strings and... And he, I think he certainly gives the your scores when it comes to them being for a huge symphony orchestra. I couldn't gives have them done the right them without. I couldn't have done them without him. Mm. He, he gives them the right sort of finish, mm. and the scores for like Disney films from the sixties, Mary Poppins, mm. and then there was Bedknobs and Broomsticks and Chitty Chitty Bang mm. Bang. They had songwriters, yeah. so they had great melodies. And they were great, the scores themselves were great, were well crafted because they had multiple people working on them. You had the songwriters and then you had the orchestrators or the arrangers. And they used melody a lot. I mean, I think that's the other big difference. You don't tend to have very memorable melodies in, particularly not action films these days. Um, you will a bit. I mean, I haven't yet seen No Time to Die. I've heard some of the tracks, but you know, Hands in That is forever um, quoting ex-John Barry, last old John Barry pieces, mm. which is fine. But it doesn't tend to happen these days that you go to see a film and that there is, like I did with The Lodger, a theme which grows through the movie. And that that was a, an absolute trope in the 50s and 60s. And particularly when you've got like the Sherman Brothers, you have two great songwriters who can do melody and can then take that melody and rework it. I, I love the opening titles of Mary Poppins. So do I. Because all those songs we're going to hear are actually very slightly reorchestrated or rethought through for that opening overture. Erwin Costal, um, the arranger. Mm. The Sherman Brothers actually wanted him to do the arranging because Owen Costell mainly until then did work on the stage. Mm. He did West Side Story with Sid Raymond. He also mm. did the movie version of West Side Story again with Sid Raymond and Johnny Green as musical director. Mm. And he then did some other shows in the late 50s. He did Fiorello. Mm. And then he did Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. Right. And the Sherman brothers saw Fiorello and they said to Walt, uh, we want Erwin um, Costal who did Fiorello. And Walt yeah. said, oh no, 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 no. I want the guy who did, I think it was Candid Camera, which was also Erwin Costal. <laughs> Brilliant. Because he, he had a vaudeville yeah. sort of um, yeah, yeah. thing. 
because he, he did these things for Pit Orchestra. Mm. And that's what he did with Mary Poppins. But as he was working in film, when it came to working with, when he worked with songwriters like the Sherman Brothers and David Henniker on mm. Half a Sixpence, mm. he, he was to them what George Martin was to the Beatles. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he, he both sort of, um, he gave them the space for their music to work really well, but he also put a spin on what they were doing. And you, you can hear, you sort of relax when you hear the beginnings of a 60s, well-scored 60s, particularly a comedy or a musical, because the music feels so controlled but lively. There's this ability that these guys had to, to really make a band sing and to understand how that works. I've always been completely blown away by the arrangements in the um, uh, Broadway melody section of Singing in the Rain mm. and the way that, that all, those, you know, all those other tunes that we've heard have been reworked to fit with what Gene's dancing requires. And it's just such a piece of remarkable writing. And it's the, it's the point for me where arranging becomes composition because they may be using pieces that already exist, but they've turned them into something new which actually is, has a life of its own aside from the pieces that it's using. And I think that's astonishing. But again, you don't get that so much. I think part of the problem with modern scoring is that composers are terrified of tunes. They're worried that a tune is going to make something seem too on the nose or too reductive, that if they don't get it right, or that it's going to suggest an older style of film, that it's somehow or other archaic to have a melody in, in your film. And I think that's a real shame, because actually, I think it's important. Melodies go in and stay in. Rhythms don't, for the most part. And particularly, what doesn't go in and stay in is just drones drones of sound. Nobody comes out with, oh, I really remember that drone that we had through that particular scene. It's not, yeah, it's not just the, it's not just the composer that's probably afraid of melody, it's also the directors. Maybe yeah. not just the melody, maybe even a single note or a single chord. Yeah. Um, Mark Shaman, who scored the Mary Poppins Returns mm. a few years ago, um, he was so, he liked the opening of the original Mary Poppins so much, he liked that, I think it was like an F sharp major chord or an F major chord played on tremolo strings before you get Feed the Birds played oh, on the yeah, horns. Absolutely. And he liked that chord so much, he tried to use it every time he scored a film. Right. And the director, whenever he shoved that chord down a director's throat, <laughs> The directors always said to him, why are you scoring my movie as if you're scoring Mary Poppins? <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Exactly. That's, I think that, that, that sums up what I was trying to say much better than I could. But with Tim, and Tim Brock not only did a great job with orchestrating my stuff in its entirety, he taught me to write for orchestra. He taught me to write for silent films. He taught me what he needed as a conductor in the score to be able to work with the silent film. And he also got what it was I was after. So, for instance, in a score that I wrote for the radio concert drama of Wind in the Willows, 
for Toad escaping from prison. I wanted the as close as I could get to the theme to The Great Escape because it felt funny and it felt like something that should work. And Tim, when he came to actually orchestrate it, wrote over those bars a la Bernstein. <laughs> but not Leonard. It was like, so, so we, got, uh, we got The Great Escape sound. And it is, and I basically copied what I know or I knew you know, Elmer had done which was uh, sing, I think it's single single piccolo I think doing that but I didn't write that tune I wrote a tune that was not dissimilar to it but anybody who hears it knows that I'm riffing off the uh, that at that point as well as the piccolo underneath that you then get the lower woodwind mm. instruments or the instruments that are, that are an octave or two lower mm. than the piccolo you get the oboes and the clarinets mm. playing these chords mm. it makes it sound a little bit bavarian or yeah. german yeah 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 i did a few quotes there's two quotes in blackmail one the obvious one of the alfred hitchcock presents music when we see hitch in the underground train uh, but the other one is much less well known and only people of my generation would recognize it because at the moment that she looks out of the window and sees a policeman walking past a long way down i actually quote a tv series from the 1960s and 70s called dixon of dot green which was yeah exactly that but it was a very safe and uh, rather patrician view of the police so because I know Hitchcock hated policemen anyway and the point of the shot is that policemen are way too far away to be any help if anything goes wrong. It felt like the right thing to drop Dixon and Doc Green in at that particular point. And it's, what's been lovely is that the players knew. The trumpet player did it for the recording, first time for the premiere. He said, I just played the Dixon and Doc Green theme. I said, yeah, you have. Brilliant. So yeah, but as I say, a modern audience isn't going to get that because they weren't around when that, that series was shown. You have um, not just collaborated with orchestrators, you've also collaborated with great conductors like Ben Palmer, Steve Dummer, mm. Steve Dummer and of course uh, uh, Timothy Brock. Mm. Um, have you ever considered conducting your own works like what some composers do? I know my draw, I know my uh, my my drawbacks I can't conduct for the simple reason that I physically I don't know how they maintain that amount of arm movement for that amount of time I also don't have the authority that they have over musicians except in the case of uh, Jordan Tutin that I've always conducted from the piano up until Steve did it and then I suddenly felt a weight lifted off my shoulders but when I was doing it before, I was conducting it from the piano, and that was fine, except um, it was fine when I was playing a print that was the right speed and the right size. And there was one time I was playing a print, in fact, for the TV version of the Paul Merton thing, when we got a different print and the music didn't fit. And in fact, we thank God we had two takes at it, because my second take, I actually had to stop the band and just go to a final chord because we were way ahead of what was happening in the film. I'm much happier having a conductor do my stuff, but also, much as I hate not being on stage or in the pit when the films happen, 
I do like sitting out in the audience and getting the effect of what my music's doing because I just feel more confident about writing again in the future. I can hear where the stuff that I've done works and where it doesn't. And it's always a lesson when I, when I hear my own stuff. Even though I'm quite often sitting there gripping my knees going, oh God, is he going to catch this next bit? Oh, will they catch the next bit? Will they catch the next bit? But it, what, what Steve did, for instance, I thought at Dartington was extraordinary because he had to try and mould a band as well out of quite disparate musicians. And there was one point where the brilliant Sophia Preston, who was on the bass, who's played bass on a lot of Ben's stuff and a lot of my stuff with Ben, said to the rest of the band, look, we're not listening to each other. We've got to listen to each other. It's not just Steve's beat we should be watching. We have got to hear each other and what we're all doing. Otherwise, it's going to be all over the place. And that really helped to pull together the Oliver Twist score. But, you know, Steve's great at giving people that sense of confidence to play as a band. Because for years and years at Dartington, he's done the wind band, and that's an all-abilities band. Turn up, play, you'll have a good time. So he's got people who are really very good, uh, and he's got people who can only just manage to get a few notes out on a sax, but they, they can do some of it, at least. And he never, ever panics or loses his temper. He's just big smile, big joke. Let's do it again. Come on. No, no, let's do it again. Come on. Big smile. And by the end of it, he has drilled a band together. And that's what I really like about Steve. And he did that twice. Well, the first time we did Jordan Tooten, we were using all the jazz teachers. So they were brilliant musicians. He didn't need to do that. With the musicians that we had for Oliver Twist, he kind of did because although they were all session musicians, they were all very fine musicians, they weren't used to playing in the kind of ensemble setup that we had for Oliver Twist. So it took a different kind of work. But Tim is still my mentor and the man who I look to most for guidance on these things. And Ben is completely brilliant and has taught me a lot as well. And working with him is always very easy because I know what he needs and he is so enthusiastic about the stuff that I write. It really, really helps to have someone who's like that. When it comes to silent film scores, um, what are your views? This, is a, this, I think, is a somewhat specific question. What are your views on silent film scores that have either been composed or compiled for that film from the time that film came out like mm. the uh like the mortimer wilson score for the black pirate or the rubboat score for the uh the chess player. chess player yeah i mean i i like i like to hear what music was intended at the time because it tells me more about the audience for that film it tells me more about what the expectation was that the audience had for the music it was going to be with it the only original score that's completely blown me away is Battleship Potemkin, which had a score written for it at the time, which is so avant-garde and futuristic, but boy, does it work. And, you know, I don't know anybody now who could begin to match that original score. It, it just feels right. It's somehow or other, he wrote a timeless piece of music in 1925 that just 
does the trick. But in general, I tend to find those kind of scores for um, uh, for film because they are, if you like, film scoring prehistory. They don't have the homogeneity of a of a, score, of a film score. They are piecemeal pieces, hmm. and each piecemeal piece goes with each scene. So there has to be a sense that that's all right, that's working there, that's working there, that's working there. Whereas sometimes I want the music to lead me through, guide me through what's going on. And although I haven't heard the Rabo for the chess player, it's quite feasible that he does do exactly this. I like to feel that uh, the, the orchestra, the, the composer on a film, isn't just there to add something that's already there, but actually has a take of their own on a film, something that will lead me through that film, and, and, and a, a deep awareness of the subtext of what's going on with that movie. And I struggle to hear composers of the time who get that deeply into the subtext of the films that they're scoring. I've got a couple of quick questions to round this interview off. Um, this one, this first one, kind of harks back to the very early days, well, in the, in the 80s when you started mm. playing the piano to these films. For a festival like this here in Pordenone, mm. um, have you ever watched a film uh, before you accompany it? Or, and if so, how many times have you watched it? Well, now I do tend to at least see a film once if I can simply because I'm that bit older now, I don't quite have the chops to be able to jump straight in. Except with the, um, the serial that I played this week, I didn't see that in advance. And I didn't see the two films, the two parts, before I played part three. Um, I did make sure that I knew what had happened plot-wise before mm. my, my part started. But with serials particularly, I think the, you know that all you've got to do is try and keep up with the action. And that meant that I could just have fun with it when I came to sit down. But in most cases, I want to have a look at a film just to get a sense of its, its, its mood as much as anything else. I want to know what the film appears to want from me. And then I want to be able to kind of um, at least be confident that there's not going to be anything coming along that's going to trip me up completely. So I do watch them from time to time now, uh, at least once, but usually on fast forward just to be able to get an idea of, mm -hmm. of the action. So to, round, to bring this interview to a close, you have performed at this festival for many years now. What do you think makes this festival, what do you think, what do you think makes this festival so special? I think the fact that it has always been only a silent movie festival. So it has always been devoted to the genre. Mm -hmm. um, that has also got a downside to it in that the great movies, the sort of creme de la creme of silent cinema, were shown way back in the 1980s when, before I came along, before a lot of these people came along. And there was a time when the committee here at uh, Pordenone didn't want to replay anything they'd already played. Mm. 
which was kind of crazy because that meant that everything they'd started with, Griffith, Chaplin, Hitchcock, you know, all the, all the massive movies of the silent period, they'd kind of already done. So you get to 1996 or whatever, you know, and it's like, well, no, we're not going to do Intolerance again. Anyway, that thankfully has gone out the window. And I think it is the fact that it brings together disparate groups who have an interest in silent film. You have academics, you have archivists, you have collectors, you have enthusiasts, you have writers, you have people who are interested in silent film for other reasons than the films, like design, technology, um, mise-en-scene, whatever. And all those people find common ground in that space over there. That wasn't always the case. There was a time when the collectors, and particularly the big owners of films in America, held sway completely. Then there was a time when the academics kind of held sway completely. There's never been a time when the musicians have held sway. That's probably just as well. But now it just feels like I meet somebody new and they could be from any of those disciplines. And that is kind of brilliant. And I don't know many other art forms or indeed forms of creativity that have got so many outlets that involve so many different people from so many different backgrounds. So to come for a week and find yourself either talking to um, you know, a, a chemical laboratory engineer who knows how to grade the color in a Technicolor film, and the next minute an academic who has made a special study of a great, great director or actor who flared up and disappeared by 1926. It is fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And that's the bit that keeps growing. We keep finding out more and more. We keep finding more and more films that we thought were disappeared. And then they come here. So that is, for me, what makes it so special. It's a proper creative melting pot of people who do silent cinema in all its various forms and being part of that is a terrific privilege well neil i i can't say any more that wraps this interview up perfectly thank you very much for giving up your time to come and do this it's a pleasure always charlie of course thank you very much